It's all good, man. Just put it down, yeah. Thanks, Sean. I'll leave the, um, I'll leave the debate about you and Ian uh, to um, other people to decide, but I appreciated your reading, so thanks, mate. Uh, we're going to continue our series uh, our looking at the life of King David, and we're going to focus on those two chapters that were just read for us, uh, 2 Samuel 5 and 2 Samuel 6. So if you can keep them open, that will be very helpful. How about I pray for us that we might make the most of this time together? Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you that you've preserved this word for us. I pray now that it might live in our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, uh, quiz to start. I want you to tell me what city is this a prototype map of? What city is this a prototype map of? Can anyone have a guess for me? Yes? Canberra. Is that what you're going to say over there, Douglas? Okay, Canberra is correct. Question always becomes, I think, if you go to Canberra, uh, why Canberra? Uh, why, why do you have a Canberra at all? And part of the reason is, after Federation, there was a debate. Now, can anyone remember when Federation was? 1901. Okay, fantastic. Um, it took an Englishman this morning to remember that in the congregation, so that was pretty good. Uh, after Federation, there was a debate between two cities. And you can kind of get a sense of that debate uh, when you look at this next picture that I'll put up. Um, there was a, a debate between Sydney and Melbourne and how powerful Sydney was versus how powerful Melbourne was. And what they were doing effectively was having an arm wrestle for seeing who would be the capital city of this new nation of Australia. And when you have one of these huge debates, you can go one way or the other or you can do the third option. And so what they did instead was choose to put the capital city nowhere. They didn't go with the best city in the world, or Melbourne. Uh, they, went with, they went with Canberra slash Yass, which I think was what was on the, on the form that they voted. And, and the idea literally was, it wasn't Sydney and it wasn't Melbourne. And so here we have, we chose Canberra. Why? Because the capital was a compromise that draws people together. It was supposed to be a unity thing. And so when we go to Canberra, we see some of that. All these things come together uh, in Canberra. So we have the political power of the country uh, with uh, our national parliament there. And we have the legal um, power centred there with the High Court of Australia. And we have the historical with the War Museum. We have the military with Duntroon, uh, the military college. And we have the diplomatic there. So we have lots of ambassadors, houses and whatever are in Canberra. That all comes together in that place. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to see that David was creating the nation of Israel in a new way, and he was going to move the capital city from a place called Hebron, blue arrow, up to Jerusalem. And the reason he needed to move it to Jerusalem is that Jerusalem was not at that time a part of Israel. And we'll talk some more about that in a little while. When was all this happening? Well, according to our uh, timeline... If we kind of zoom it in a little bit here, uh, we're, out, we're somewhere in the period from 1,000 to about 1,005 BC, so a long time ago. And what we're going to be watching is this is how David establishes his kingdom, which is uh, a pretty exciting thing because we've been doing this series on King David for a while, and we've had this anointing idea before us. Do you remember the idea of anointing? Oil on the head to say, you are the king. We've had a bit of a problem running, haven't we? 
We've had two people who have been anointed to be king. One who's actually acting as the king, that's Saul, and one who's the kind of king-in-waiting, who's David. Last week, in a tragic battle with the Philistines, we saw one of them had been removed, and now David is free to run the show. And so that's where we're up to. And we see that in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Have a look with me at verses 1 to 4. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We're your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people, Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. A couple of points to note. Firstly, did you see that David makes a covenant? You remember we met this word last, year, last week? David makes a covenant with the leaders of Israel. Secondly, we see that his base was in Hebron. He, that was where his tribe was from. And so it kind of made sense that he set up his first capital city where he was from. And thirdly, we see that his 40-year reign is actually split into two parts. David in Hebron over Judah and then David in Jerusalem over all of Israel. So there's two parts uh, to that 40-year rule. Well, why did he need two parts? Well, as I said to you before, Jerusalem wasn't always the capital of Israel. And in fact, Jerusalem was owned by a group called the Jebusites. And so they hadn't been wiped out. They were still living in their little fortified city. And uh, to give us some insight into why the city fell, uh, we need to have a look at this picture here. In about 2008, some archaeologists were digging in the location of David's uh, palace. And as they were digging around, they found this passageway. And they believe that this secret tunnel that had been hidden for millennia was actually probably the water shaft that's mentioned here in this passage. So if you have a look with me, we'll see why the water shaft is so important. Have a look at verses 6 to 12. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. What does that tell you? Essentially what they're saying is Jerusalem was built up in such a way it was really easy to defend. It was a stronghold, a really easy to defend place. Even the blind and the lame could ward you off. They thought David can't get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That's why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. So what's going on here? Do you guys remember um, the Trojan horse? Do you guys remember the Trojan horse? This idea of how Troy fell. So they rolled the horse in. This is, the pre this is a present for you. And inside the, the horse was what? Soldiers and they broke out at night, this massive fortress, which they couldn't get in from the outside. They'd taken the soldiers in in secret, and now they were fighting from the inside. And that meant that the fortress fell. Okay? What happened here with the water shaft is that the troops got in from the inside, up through the water shaft, and now they were fighting inside the city that enabled them to defeat them. Does, does that make sense? Okay, so that, that explains the tunnel. 
Then we see that the Lord blesses David. Have a look at verse 9. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. That was a pretty imaginative name, wasn't it? Uh, He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. You see, David's power and his strength comes from God, and it's God who is enabling him to succeed. But then we see something really unexpected. David gets a hand from someone you wouldn't expect to help him out. Up the coast of Israel, up the coast, on the coast of a place called Tyre. It's not Israel. It's not a tribe of Israel, but here's what happens. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. So what happened was, I reckon that king of Tyre decided that there's a new king in Israel. That's going to be unfortunate for us. What's the best way to get him on side? I know, we'll send him a present. What's the present? The present is a a brand new palace. We'll supply the wood, we'll supply the stone, and we'll even build it for you. That's not bad, is it? And David looks around and he goes, God has established me. And so it looks like everything's going brilliantly. But just as Michelle reminded us before, David isn't always brilliant. Have a look with me. I just want to see a little note on 5.13. It says, after he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. We just need to note, uh, there is a biblical number for the number of wives that you should have. Does anyone know what that number is? Thank you, Alec. Uh, this morning, the morning, you're a lot quicker than the morning service. The morning service looked back at me like it was a trick question. And I just kind of held my nerve and looked back at them and said, guys, this isn't really difficult. The number is one. You should know this. So the number of wives is one. And David here is taking more and more wives and concubines. I just want us to observe, he is not without his flaws. It tells us this is happening in the, in the, in the, in the um, account, but it doesn't endorse it. It just reminds us that this is what David was doing. And he probably was becoming more powerful because you marry into more families, more relationships, etc., etc. Don't forget, at the end, we have question time. So if you've got questions, you can put me on the spot with awkward questions afterwards. That'd be great. So what's David trying to do? Well, the first thing that he's done is he's got the state sorted out. He has his capital in place and he has a palace, which he didn't have to build, in place. Fantastic. But David wants to bring everything together. Remember that picture of Canberra. So what does he need to do? David was only halfway there because what he wanted to do was bring the church together with his political power. So he wanted to bring the priests and the ark together in Jerusalem. And now in order to understand what happened with that, we need to do a little bit of background. So let's go deep diving into the ark, which did exist prior to any Indiana Jones movies you may have seen. The Ark of the Covenant. Here it is. We're going to find out how to build an ark. Did you know that this was in the Bible? Have a look with me at Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, so second book of the Bible. Exodus, uh, we're looking at chapter 37, and we're going to see, uh, here's your handy guide to building an ark. How wonderful. Uh, Exodus 37, verses 1 to 5. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits long, and a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. He overlaid it with pure gold, both inside and out, and made a gold moulding around it. 
he cast four gold rings for it and fastened them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, and he inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. Hey, Zach. Um, So let's have a look at the things that we've noticed so far. So firstly, uh, the atonement cover, this is the lid for the ark. Does anyone know what was inside the ark? Ten commandments, yes. What else? A jar of manna. Aaron's staff, yes. And I think there's one more thing that I can't remember off the top of my head. At any rate, precious, precious things are in there. It's covered in gold. Now, are you guys familiar with cubits? No. Okay, so here's basically, it's, it's a metre and a half by 68 centimetres by 68 centimetres. I said this morning, it's kind of about the size of a glorified esky. Okay, that's kind of the size that we're talking about. And it's obviously a lot more precious. It's covered in gold and made of wood. So what else have we got? We've got these cherubim on top. These are kind of uh, creatures with wings. And then it's got, did you notice these? Rings. Why do they have rings? Good work. Absolutely right, Owen. So you can slide the poles in. All right, you guys are doing great. You now know how to construct an ark. What we now need to learn is how do you move an ark And that is found for us uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, verse 8, I read this. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord and to pronounce the blessings on his name, as they still do today. So, Uh, What does it take to move an ark? Let me insert Levites. You need to have people from one of the tribes of Israel called Levi. You need to have them. There's the Levites. And what are they doing with the ark? They're going to carry it. They need to pick it up and put it on their shoulders. So now you have how to build an ark and you have how to carry an ark, which is that's how you go about moving it. Fantastic. Now, a little bit more information. Why do we need to move the ark in the first place? Well, the Israelites had been in a battle with the Philistines. Background. And in the battle, the battle hadn't been going so well. And so what they decided to do is they thought, let's bring the ark on our next battle adventure. They kind of, I think they'd reduce the ark to kind of a rabbit's foot. You know, it's the lucky charm. I don't know what another, what is a lucky charm these days apart from a rabbit's foot? As someone observed, as a comedian observed, it wasn't very lucky for the rabbit, was it? At any rate, they thought it was a lucky charm. So they took it with them into battle. And what happened? Well, the Philistines beat them and they took the ark and they brought it to their own cities. When it got to the city, they set it up in the city in front of their god, Dagon. Now, this is an Easter Island head, but bear with me, okay? They put it in front of Dagon in their temple. And in the morning, they came in and Dagon was bye-byes. Dagon was face down before the ark of God. And then something even worse happened. People in the city started to die and started to get tumors. And so then they moved it to another city. And guess what happened there? People started to die and they got tumors. And then they were going to move it to a third city, uh, which we can can see here in, uh, in in 1 Samuel 5, In 1 Samuel 5, they proposed moving it to another city, and here's what those guys said. 
As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they've brought the ark of the God of Israel around to kill us. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic and God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die reflected with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So what they decided to do, we're going to send the ark back. Have you guys heard this story? It's fantastic. What we're going to do is we're going to work out, are we just having a bad day with the ark or is this really from God? If it's from the God of Israel, here's what we'll do. We'll get some cows who've never pulled a cart before. We'll build a cart, put the cows in front of the cart, put the ark on the cart. I think I've got that here. Very good. And then what they said was, what we're going to do is we'll see. If the ark goes straight up to Israel, then this was from God. If it wanders around in an aimless circle, we're just having a bad ark day. Okay? And it wasn't God's fault. So they put the ark on the cart and they looked at it and it went straight up to Israel. Where it stopped and where, unfortunately for the cows, they were sacrificed on the cut up cart as a celebration to God because the Israelites were so happy that the ark had returned. So now we pick up our story with King David who wants to move the ark. Long excursus, it's going to make sense in a second. Bear with me. When we move something dangerous, we want to take a lot of precautions. And uh, here's the French moving some of their nuclear waste. You can see they're being very, very careful, okay? It's in special containers to contain the dangerous stuff. It's got an a, a accompaniment of um, ships around the outside and, and maybe some protesters as well. We need to be careful when we're moving dangerous things, David, I think, is trying to be very careful. Have a look with me, 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verses 1 to 7. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. That's a big number, incidentally. He and all his men went up to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. We now know what that means. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of this irrelevant act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Hang on, what's going on? What's going on? Isn't that just weird and scary? What, what was wrong with what they were doing? Remember, you guys have been instructed in how to move the ark. What was wrong? What were they doing that was wrong? Well, it was on a cart. Is that how God had wanted it to be moved? It's not. And we're not, I'm not convinced anyway from my reading that Uzzah and Ohio were Levites. I'm not convinced that they were, which meant that we had the wrong vehicle and potentially the wrong people. On top of that, they were playing castanets. That's got to be bad, right? Okay. But what happened next was, okay, what happens next was Uzzah reaches out and tries to go, oh God, I've got you. I've got you, God. Good slips catch. Because the, uh, the, uh, the oxen stumbled and he went to catch the ark, which was obviously sliding off the cart. And he dies. 
There's this terrible cost. Why? Because the holy God won't be moved by whatever you think is okay. The holy and awesome God has said, this is the way you will honour me. And they had decided he'll be at our pleasure and we'll make sure we look after him. They'd reduce God again to some sort of happy, lucky charm. And treating God like that does not work out well for anyone. How did David respond? Well, David's first response, have a look in verse 8, was he was angry. David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to that day, this place is called Perez Uzzah, which means breaks out against Uzzah. Makes sense. David's angry. He's going, what? I've got 30,000 people here playing castanets and lyres and whatever. What has gone wrong? He was angry with God. And his next emotion, I think, makes sense. It's fear. Whoa. God, who are you? I thought you were in the box helping me consolidate my political power, but now I find that you're so holy, so awesome, that you're actually able to kill people who do the wrong thing. And so he says, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So then he says, all right, well, the ark, don't, don't bring the ark to my place. Park the ark. It's pretty good, isn't it? Park the ark at Obed-Edom's place. You can't, now, I reckon Obed-Edom was a pretty faithful guy, wasn't he? Oh, sure. Put the ark in my place. What had just happened? The ark had just killed somebody, yeah. Well, at least God through the ark had just killed someone. But Obed-Edom says, all right, put it at my house. And do you know what happens next? Blessing. Blessing flows on his house because he honours and respects God. And so for the next three months, blessing pours out all over his house. And then David goes, well, you know what? I want some of that at my place. Let's move the ark again. And so David has another go full of worship of God. And so his second go is a little bit more successful, although I want you to observe it's totally over the top. Have a look at verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Have a look at this. One, two, three, four, five, six. What are we sacrificing? A bull and a fattened calf. Now, I don't, you work with cattle, mate. They're big, yeah? If you're sacrificing a bull, it's a messy... Anyway, you get the idea. Every six steps. Whoa. We want to make sure, God, please don't do anything bad to us. We're sacrificing our heads off here. Right? Craziness. My observation would be, David's afraid, but he's not doing what is right. He's overcompensating. God, if I can keep you at bay by sacrificing, that'd be great. The reality is, God told them how to move the ark. Put it on the shoulders of the Levites and you'll be okay. And I think he's just afraid. But he is full of worship. And so he starts to dance before the Lord. And uh, this is where we get um, this wonderful scene here uh, where he's despised by Michal. Have a look at this, verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. I think this is the very definition of looking down on someone. Okay, that's good material, right? Okay. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. There's David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she goes, this is not kingly. You are not doing justice to your position here. You're disgracing yourself. Why was David dancing? He's got the music in him. No, he just loved God, and he wanted to honor God with all of his heart. 
And, and I guess sometimes we can watch other people worshipping God, and it's possible, it's possible for us to sneer at them, isn't it? Why are you so into this? People with their hands in the air, look, just put your hands down, chill out. Don't you know that it's official policy to put hands in pockets? Don't you know it's officially okay to sing quietly or to fold your arms and opt out entirely? And when we do that, when we do that, we really are dishonouring God and we're dishonouring those who are seeking to honour God in their hearts. On top of that, can I just observe, we, we would, many of us would never dance, right, before the Lord, I think, right? But it is intriguing to me, and it doesn't need to turn to a dance session tonight in our, in our conclusion tonight, okay? That we don't need to do that. But here's the thing. When I'm wholeheartedly involved in perhaps a, uh, a Champions League game this morning and Liverpool equalises, okay, I am not sitting there quietly going, oh, that's interesting. I am punching this and I'm doing some of these. I'm dancing wholeheartedly with joy. But... Don't do that before the Lord, who's the most important person in your life. Interesting, isn't it? David, David shows some genius, I think some real genius here. What he does is he brings the state together in Israel with the church. And he creates a capital city, a brand new capital city, a compromised capital city that was further north than he would have naturally had it, that drew in the northern tribes and brought together the political power and the religious power. I think he's a savvy guy, young David. And so David has had this incredible reversal. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, he was begging for food from Nabal? Do you remember that message? He was begging for food on the margins of society. Then God removes Saul and his descendants, and now the place is open, and David has become the king, where he's so blessed, it says, at the end of chapter 6 there, that he's able to give everybody a sticky date pudding and send them home. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's a pretty good reversal. That is God's timing. Do you, do you remember how patient David was? He didn't take it into his own hands. He waited for God. This is a God reversal. Well, there we go. There's a 3,000-year-old story. Fantastic. We can go home, can't we? Where's the life-changing application? Let's think about a couple of things to apply this. Number one, the living God is holy. The, the God who is actually there in the universe is holy, and he is not He is not your homeboy. The living God is holy and he is not your homeboy, okay? He can't be reduced to a rabbit's foot and he can't be taken for granted. We have to apply, uh, approach him with reverence as he reveals himself. God said, come to me carefully. I am holy. Number two, the way that we're to approach God is through Jesus. He actually makes a way for sinners like you and I to approach the holy God. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, the, the writer, I mean, I, I'd read the whole chapter, but, you know, that's probably pushing things. You can ask for it in question time. Oh, please, 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 can you read the whole of chapter 10? But here's, here's what it says in verses 11 to 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. This is talking about the Old Testament. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But now he's going to talk about Jesus. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever 
those who are being made holy? How can people who have sin in them approach the deadly holiness of God? It's through the cross of Jesus. One sacrifice that perfects those who are not perfect. Praise God. We need to come to God through Jesus who disarms God with his self-sacrifice. How wonderful. I want to ask, is God for you the capital city or is he your holiday house? Is God placed in your life as the capital city? Do all roads run through God when it comes to making decisions of commerce, love, education, all the aspects of family and in your life, does everything run through the capital city? Or is God a holiday house we occasionally visit once a week, every fortnight, when the kids are well once a month? When does God get a look in in your life? Is he placed as a capital city? Do you need to move him up from Hebron into Jerusalem in your life? Is he at the center of all of your networks? Fourthly and lastly, When it comes to worship, will we be people who worship God with our whole heart? Will we bring the best of ourselves to honour the living God? Will we do that together? So when we we pray and praise God at the end here, will it be some people doing it individually or will we collectively lift up our voice and honour God together? It's a together thing, right? But it's also this. The reason that David was able to dance before the Lord is because he had an audience of one. He wasn't worried that Michal was up in the, in the window and he didn't mind that other people saw him in his undies dancing around because the person he was trying to honour was God and God alone. And so tonight, I don't mind if you dance. I don't mind if you clap in time or out of time. I don't mind if you have castanets or whatever you have. Sorry? In your undies. Oh. We'll work really hard not to despise you as you do that. Okay, mate? But, but here's the thing, church, I, I really want to encourage you to worship God is more than just Sunday, okay? So you may be worshiping God with all your heart Monday through Saturday. But when we come together, will you show us that you're putting him first and that you are honoring him? So together, we worship God with our whole hearts with an audience of just one. You know, this, uh, this section finishes, when David, then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. You think, man, David has it all. What more could David want? Come back next week. There's even more in store for David. I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for David. Thank you for the way that he shows us what it looks like to pursue you with all our hearts. Father, save us from from despising others. Save us from offering you the least that we have. Father, come and take that capital city place in our hearts. Forgive us, Father, where we've moved you out of town. Help us, Lord, not to presume on you, but to come through your Son as we boldly approach your throne. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there we go. Have we got any questions arising from tonight? Things that you might like to ask. Dance songs that you might like to hear in church. Questions? Yep, go, go, man. I'll give you the mic so we can capture.
And then I run away, so it looks like we're doing okay. Okay, right, mate, go. Good, good job, mate. Um, <laughs> I remember just out of uh, the last reading, I didn't actually read it, but I heard it. <laughs> There's saying fellowship offerings and sacrificial offerings or something. So yeah. what's the difference? Fellowship offerings and sacrifices. Yeah, so it's in, that was back in 2 Samuel 6. So David arranged for them to be offered. Uh, it's very interesting. It would be a clever question if someone asked me, what was David doing offering sacrifices? Um, because I don't know what he was doing doing that. Uh, but it says, uh, where are we? Uh, after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord God Almighty. Um, burnt offerings were uh, generally ones that were fragrant and pleasing to God or may have included some of the sacrifices being burnt up after they were um, offered. And fellowship offerings were ones that were about uh, the relationships between people. So an offering that was draw- intending to draw people near to God and to one another. So they had, different, they had different purposes. So one was to make atonement for sin and the other one was to talk about the proximity of relationship. Yeah, and, and they're actually all listed out in, in Leviticus. And if I was really on my money, I could find a passage for you. But if you go home and do your Google work, you'll find them. Is that all right? Thanks, mate. Another question? Great. Oh, Lawrence, go on. Oh, great, Lauren, thank you. I'm just interested in the undies. How, how do we get to the underpants? Uh, what does the, that mean? The ephod, the ephod is the word, um, and uh, it's a linen garment. And um, yeah, uh, it wouldn't have been the thing that everybody was wearing. Um, and there's special clothing that's set aside for the priests to wear. And it, this is kind of the underpart of that. Yep. How did he do that? Why did he do that? The, um, it seems that um, the ephod, if you chase that word through, you'll see that um, the ephod's used to determine uh, God's will or puts you in a place where you're able to do better at understanding what God wants you to do. And so it seems like he put it on and it was part of his, I think, reflecting his desire to be close to God. Um, and I think probably he was freer to dance. Can I, can I just observe to the guys here? Uh, it's, it's very often that, I mean, I, I used to have um, mates who would say, you know, I don't get all this singing, all this Jesus is my girlfriend stuff, you know, um, which just does my head in, okay? David is more manly than anyone. He is the class A warrior. He's the guy who goes out and slays Goliath. It just so happens that the biblical picture of masculinity, sorry, this is a rant, the biblical, possi- the, the biblical picture of masculinity includes poetry and playing a musical instrument, as well as slaying, drag, uh, slaying, dragon, slaying bears and lions. As well as being the, the leader of the rebellion as an outlaw on the fringes of society, he's also the holy king. Okay, And, and I just want to say it is such an impoverished view of masculinity that says we cannot express our hearts to God with real emotion. And so I would say to those of you who want to say to me, oh, I don't get into all that stuff, I'd say, take a look at biblical masculinity and find a place to express the depths of your heart to the living God who sent his son to die for you. Long rant, good question. I'm going to sit down before I go, oh, there's another one. Go, go Annabelle. You, all I can say is I'm post-rant, so anything could happen. Go, go Annabelle. 
Part one is a question and part two is an observation. So part one is, am I right in observing, observing that this is the first time that we begin to see the significance of Jerusalem yes. as a city? Yeah. Um, and part two is, thank you, because I, just, I don't think I'd seen the significance of this passage before studying it as part of this series. Oh, great. No, great. So, yes, absolutely. From now on, we will pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The center of the people of God will be in Jerusalem. We'll build the temple in Jerusalem. You'll have people still today saying Jerusalem is the center of God's plan on earth. I don't think that's true. But this, for millennia to come, will be the absolute center point of God's plan. Yeah, so it's, it's fantastic. It's absolutely... And there was one, one through a shaft. All right, I'm going to stop and sit down and hand over to Michael. If you've got more questions, there's lots of supper. Come find me and we can talk more.